hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. And welcome to another episode of Women Worth Knowing. My name is Jasmine Allnut, and I'm joined, of course, by Cheryl Broderson. Yes. And we are in the midst of uh, the fascinating story of Helen Rosevere. As you know, we've done parts one and two, and today we're going to wrap up with part three. And we left quite a quite a finish for you here. So Cheryl, go ahead and bring us into where we are at. I also want to say this. Oh, yes. Not only are—she um, wrote 10 books mm. um, that are available, and you really should read— her books. They're fascinating. She's a but great author. Also, there's a special on her on Amazon Prime called Mama Luca. And it is so, so good. If you don't fall in love with her, something is wrong with you. <laughs> no offense, but let's just be honest. So we're gonna we're gonna jump to 1964. Right. Um, Helen has been called to the Congo. She went home on leave. She voluntarily comes back. By this time, uh, it used to be the Belgium Congo, and it's the Belgians have pulled out, and it's really not the Congo anymore. It's already becoming Zaire. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's been all this unrest in the government, and the witch doctors take over. And the witch doctors are less than 3% of the population, but what they do is they give free drugs to these young kids. And so the soldiers that they take in are between the ages of 10 and maybe 20 years old. They're young, and they're giving them all sorts of drugs. And they're telling them that if they take the drugs and with these incant- incantations, they can't die. They're, they're invincible. invincible. Yeah. But what happens is when some of them do die, they say, oh, that's because there's still white people in the country. We've got to get rid of all the white people. And once we purge, you know, Zaire or the yeah. Congo of all the white people, then you'll be invincible again and you'll have power. On October 29th, 1964, a band of Simbas, and the word Simbas means lions. And remember, they are directed by the witch doctors. So it's very demonic. Simba, Lion King. Yes. Interesting. Attacked Helen's house. And Helen tried to run, but she was caught. And that night she was kicked, beaten, and violently raped. And she said of that night, she said she felt the evil. She said you could feel the evil. She said it was just this darkness and this evil uh, that was that was coming from them. Two of the nurses that she had worked with, the male nurses, tried to defend her, and they were kicked senseless. In fact, she was afraid they were dead. And it was this 15-year-old boy who was leading the Simbas who took her back into the back room and raped her. And then later they go to drive, you know, one of the hospital cars. They don't even know how to drive. And one of the kids, his his feet can't even reach the pedals. I mean, this is how young they were. Yeah. And you know, after, after she's raped, the one young man says, put on your best dress because you're now my wife. Can you imagine? I mean, just the humiliation of it. This is what she said. They found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over the head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. Her captors were brutal, drunk, and some of them just high. This was not her last sexual assault. She was rounded up with other missionaries, and she was held in captivity for five months. 
Helen cried out to God during this time, and she felt for a time as if God had failed her. In fact, she thought, if only I'd left with the others, if only I hadn't stayed to take care of these people. And she felt despairing nothingness. Like, she didn't feel anything, and she wanted to feel. And she said, then the Lord spoke to her, and this is what he said. You asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And she received that night and threw out this whole ordeal, an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask me, a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. Incredible. Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met me. With outstretched arms of love, it was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed and in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. Can you believe that? Powerful, Mm -hmm. yeah. In an unexpected mercy, the night of her rape, one of the Simbas found Helen's glasses, washed them off, and gave them back to her. She said it's like this little token of mercy, so unexpected, all this brutality, and this one who didn't participate finds her glasses, finds them in the mud, washes them off, and gives them back to her. The missionaries were rounded up and driven to Paulus. The rebels at Paulus were upset and ordered them all back to Nebobongo. Arriving back, Helen was allowed to pack one suitcase before taking to Mbambi. In Mbambi, Pastor uh, Nudgu, who was her pastor, found her and was able to take her to the house of some missionaries for prayer, food, and a fitful sleep. So she'd have these little bits of mercy even during the captivity. There, all the missionaries were allowed to stay together until they were rounded up again and taken to Wamba. These Simbas claimed they were protecting them from other Simbas who would kill them. And the Simbas had begun to lose the war against the new government. Many had died, and the witch doctor said it was because of the white people and that all the white people must be rounded up and killed. In Wamba, the missionaries were ushered into a convent. The mother superior immediately began to take care of all of them. More and more white people were brought by the Simbas to the convent. On Christmas of 1964, the women held a Christmas Eve service. While they were singing, some Simbas arrived and ordered Mother Superior and four nuns to relocate with them. Mother Superior sighed deeply, You know what will happen if we resist. And she turned to the rest and said, Be be strong in the Lord. These nuns were also raped. Yeah. The Simbas showed up two nights later and ordered all the women and children to get their belongings. They were being relocated again. They were driven about 75 miles to a Belgian plantation. The next day, the whole town came to the building where the women were and jeered and thumped on the doors. Um, They wanted to kill them. And surprisingly, their captives protected them and even got them food. 
Within days or weeks, Helen lost track of time. The bungalow was surrounded by the military. The Simbas fought back. Helen was concerned that they might die by friendly fire. She heard the machine guns outside, and all the captives hit the ground. Soon the doors were kicked open, but rather than the Simbas or the Congolese, it was white mercenaries. These men rescued them and sent them by way of jeeps, helicopters, and trucks to safety. Crowded in one of the trucks, Helen heard a familiar voice greet her. Looking over, she saw this other WEC missionary, Brian Cripps, um, who had also served in in Bombay. She cried with joy. They arrived in Paulus, and Helen was able to bathe and sleep in a bed. The following morning, Helen was flown to Leopoldville, then to Amsterdam, and then to London. This was 1965. Helen stayed in England for a year. While in English, she received many letters from Mama Damaris and John uh, Mangadima. He wrote about the damage to the hospital and how hard it was to get supplies. They were anxious for her to return and continue to teach them. Fifteen months after being evacuated from the Congo, Helen did return. Amazing. She arrived back on Easter Sunday, April 10th, 1966. That in itself is a miracle Isn't that she it? was willing to go back again. Helen found her house riddled with bullets but repairable. The people in Nebobongo once wore Western clothing, but now they only had rags to wear. There were no school supplies. The most immediate needs were blankets, food, and clothing. Hundreds of people were coming out of hiding. They were suffering from malnutrition. Helen assessed the terrible damage to the hospital. Just about everything had been stolen. Helen had come back with a big supply truck with drugs, medical equipment, bandages, cupboards, microscopes, beds, stretchers, surgical equipment, other supplies to get the hospital up and running. But she asked then, Please send blankets. Helen went to the Bunia Clinic to meet and work with the legendary Dr. Becker for a time. They talked and walked and realized they shared the same vision for the Congo. Dr. Becker asked Helen to come and work with him at the hospital he was building in Nyankunde. Helen was ecstatic. Working with Dr. Becker, she'd be able to train up nurses and doctors to serve all over the Congo. Helen was anxious to start. She moved to Nyankunde. Uh, John Mangadu. Dima, who also was a doctor by this time, went as well. There were no buildings, but she she wanted to start the school. So guess how they communicated for any students who were ready? She, she had them beat the drums. Drums, yeah, that's a so communication form. So they did this drum beat. Yeah. And 20 men and two women came to go to school. Mm-hmm. Some had traveled up to 300 miles. When they arrived, there were no buildings. So they're like, where are the buildings? Where are the classrooms? Yeah. So Helen looks at the field behind her and she says, don't you see them? That's where <laughs> they are. You're going to build them. She told of one day working these buildings again. She's mixing the bricks and everything and then being called away for an emergency surgery. As antiseptic was being poured over her hands, she felt a little grumpy. She prayed and the Lord reminded her of the privilege of being part of what was being built for him. So this one day, though, I just want to tell this story. She's like, what am I doing back in the Congo? She was overtaken by fear. It didn't help all the time, but this one day, this Mm. one night she stopped being able to sleep and she was overtaken by fear. What if, you know, everything is still unstable. And she just, like, what if it happens again? Yeah, Yeah. And so this missionary comes to her house late at night and he wakes her up. He says, I want to show you something. And she walks outside. 
and she realized there's a group of Congolese people that have gathered around her house and every night they hold a prayer vigil and they sit holding hands surrounding her house, making a chain so that nobody can get to Mama Luca. And she realized how desperately loved she was. Beautiful. And, you know, it's interesting because she said, you know, somebody said, did you have any resentment? You know, did you have any prejudice? And she said at one point she had prejudice, but that was in the beginning. And Pastor Nugadu told her, you've got prejudice. And she's like, no, I don't. He goes, yes, you do. You're prejudiced because you're fast and we're slow and you don't like our ways. And she's like, I am prejudiced. And she prayed (laughs) and she repented. But she realized at at this point she didn't because the Lord showed her that 97% of the Congolese were precious open to the gospel or already saved. It was only this 3%, and it was led by the demonic forces of the witch doctors. Boy, isn't that important to remember. That's so yeah. important. <laughs> Helen's days again began with 5 a.m., but this time not tea, but coffee, and it usually ended after midnight. It took seven years and lots of hoops and red tape for the school to get full accreditation, but Helen did it. Helen served in the Congo, Zaire, for seven more years until 1973. She returned to the U.K. to take care of her mother. When she arrived home, she took herself and her mother for a much-needed holiday in Cornwall. Their family owned a house in Cornwall, too. Helen also started writing a book about her experience in the Congo. And the Lord had told her to share about her rape because it would help so many women um, heal. And it's true because most of her work later after she retired was with women. She realized that it brought a lot of healing to women. She felt like others needed to know that God was big enough. Helen received many invitations from Canada and the United States to speak. In 1975, she went to North America and she spoke over 400 times in nine months. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine that? While she was in North America, she received news that her mother had passed away. She also discovered a lump in one of her breasts. And after she returned to England, she underwent surgery and a long recovery for breast cancer. After recovery, she thought about going back to Africa. She asked her friends to pray for divine direction. At this time, she was teaching at the WEC Missionary College in Glasgow. And she wrote another book during her time outlining the core values of the WEC. In 1976, she flew to Chicago and was a featured speaker at a conference that included John Stott, Billy Graham, and Elizabeth Elliott. Oh, I love it. Yeah, she returned to Glasgow, continuing her work with the WEC, and started Girls Crusaders Clubs wherever she could. She also counseled at Christian Crusader camps, and it was at one of these camps that Helen met Dr. Patricia Morton and her mother, Patricia was a cardiologist, and she had been interested in missions and had supported missions. And she also worked with the Girls Crusader Clubs, and they found that they had so many mutual interests. And Patricia said, why don't you live at my house? Because remember, Helen has, you know, no money, right? Yeah. So she says, live at my house um, in Belfast, and you can go all over the country, and you don't have to worry about, you know, everything. So she uh, moved and stayed with Patricia and her mother in Belfast in 1977. Then Helen joined St. Elizabeth's Church in Belfast. And later, after her retirement, her real retirement, she served as the treasurer of their building fund and of the church. And that was, of course, when she wasn't traveling or speaking for the WEC. (laughs) Helen wanted to be an evangelist, but felt overcome by shyness, even though that's what the WEC was. After all she'd gone through. (laughs) Yes. So she's sitting at a railway station. She's like, Lord, can I really be an evangelist? Can I really be? I'm so shy. And so there was a woman next to her, and she looks across, and there's a billboard of someone smoking. And she just says, oh, it was raining. So she asked the woman if she wanted to share the umbrella, and the woman said yes. So Helen took that as a sign that the Lord was opening the door. So she looks across at that billboard, and she goes, I just hate that. 
that woman smoking. She said, I'm a doctor and I know that smoking causes lung cancer and I've treated people that have died of lung cancer and I myself am a cancer survivor and I know the dangers of it. And the woman looked at her and began to cry and said, I've just come from the doctor and I found out I have lung cancer and I've oh smoked my like goodness. a you know, pack a day for the last years. So Helen began to share Jesus with her and the woman received the Lord. <laughs> and the Lord was showing Helen, you can do this. You can yes. do this. In 1988, when Helen was 63, a director asked her to make a documentary on her life um, called Mama Luca Returns, which you can see again. Ah, yes. On Amazon Prime. Helen was flown to uh, Nyankunde, and when she arrived, she was placed into an armchair and hoisted onto the back of a pickup truck. Helen interacted with many of her former students and inspected the hospital and school. After several days there, Helen was flown to uh, Nebobongo. The entire village lined up to see her. Waiting first in line was John Meng. Mm. Gadima and Mama Damaris. She was giving a tour of the dispensary, the old hospital she had built. Helen visited other WEC mission stations, and the missionaries prayed for her and commissioned her to go as their missionary into all the world to preach. Isn't that so precious? Sweet. Also, her pastor, Pastor Nagadu, he met her there too. He was in his 90s, but you can see him in the documentary, and he looks so young. Helen then, after she got back, she traveled to Poland, to Hong Kong, to France, to the United States again, to Mexico, to Vietnam, and to various Muslim countries. Wow. I know. She was in incredible demand. (laughs) But she also returned to Nebobongo one last time in 2004, and she was 79 years old. But they were opening a new surgical wing in the hospital. And by this time, the hospital is sophisticated, right? Oh, yeah. Um, She also visited her old house. But John Mengadima was her escort and showed her all the training facilities. And the school now had 700 students and 13 teachers. Wow. And the surgical wing was named Surgical Center of Mama Luca. Oh, isn't that so sweet? So By this time, even John Mengadima was retired. <laughs> he yeah, was old enough like, to retire. At that point. So Helen also visited a refugee center near Nyingkunde. Um, the hospital and school in Nyingkunde had been attacked in 2002, and there was nothing left of that of that training center wow. and of that school. The staff and many of the patients had been killed, and the buildings were damaged. So again, you know, when she'd gone back, there was so much. On still rest, unrest. and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't over. Wow! After Helen's last trip to the Congo, she semi-retired in Belfast. Remember, she's seventy-nine. Now it's at this point that you can see some of these interviews that she did, and she's older. Uh, she just talked about her undying love for Jesus from the Amazing. time she received Jesus. At Cambridge, she just loved Jesus. And when they say to her, you you did this amazing thing and that amazing thing, she's like, oh, I wasn't amazing at all. No, it, it was just the Lord. And she she can tell you more about her faults hmm. than she can about what she did well. And on those uh, videos on YouTube, she shares some of the greatest stories. Some of the stories are in the books. Some of the stories aren't in the books. Uh, one of the stories she told was about a, a little girl that was born. Um, her mother died in childbirth, and they had to have a hot water bottle for this for this baby, or the baby would not stay warm enough. And one of the nurses came in and said, our last hot water 
bottle burst. We don't have anything for this baby. So the nurses were all trying to keep the baby warm. And she had, again, she had one of her crusader, girls' crusaders meetings with uh, the young Congolese girls. And one of the Congolese girls said, I'm going to pray. God always answers prayer. You've taught us that God answers prayer. So she prays for a hot water bottle. And then a shipment comes. And the little girl says, where's our hot water bottle? And Never before had Helen received, this is the first parcel she ever received from England from the Crusader Union girls. First one ever. Wow. And it came the the very, and the little girl, I forgot when she prayed, she said, Lord, and we're in a rush. We need it now. We need it as soon as possible. It cannot be tomorrow, the next week. We need it now. And And it came that day. Man. And as, and. The girl had also prayed and throw in a doll for her sister because her sister needs a doll to be comforted because she's just lost her mom. Aww. So they searched through and among all the bandages and all the supplies they sent, there's a hot water bottle. The girl like jumps into the crate, the little girl who prayed and said, if there's a hot water bottle, there's a doll. And she begins to search. And, you know, there's not toys or anything. No. But she comes up and here's a doll. I love it. It was just so the Lord. And Helen was talking yeah. about that. And, and then another book she wrote. Uh, she wrote this book because um, she said that she, when they were building the school, she had given the students paint, and she came in, and they had painted. They had put in all this effort, but they had never stirred the paint. So it was just that you know oil on top, yeah. so it did nothing. So she shows them that they need to stir the paint. So she leaves them, and she comes back, and half of it's painted, but half of it's not. And it's because they didn't keep stirring the paint. And so the Lord spoke to her that spiritually we need to keep stirring, mm. that we always have to be stirred up or our efforts will be in vain. Yeah. So she wrote a book on that called, I think it was called Keep Stirring. But um, she would take these stories and the Lord would give her all these scriptures. And so her books are so good and they're so humble and they're so sweet with these yeah. these great, great um, lessons. An excellent writer, yeah. Definitely. Excellent. So after Helen's last trip to the Congo, um, she semi-retired in Belfast, getting more involved uh, with her church. And she kept up correspondence with friends and she wrote encouraging letters to all the missionaries that she knew in the Congo and to, of course, um, Mama Damaris and those she yeah, yeah, yeah. worked with. And um, Helen, after that, Helen's health began to decline. Um, she began to forget things. She began to drop things. Oh, like dementia? Was mm-hmm. she okay? Yeah. And so in 2014, um, Helen um, did her last interview. And so you've got to remember, she's in her, she's 89 at this time, and she's still cognizant enough to do an interview. And it's really cute. She's so cute. She's sitting in a group with all these women, and she's talking, and it's just so adorable. Mm. Um, After that, she was transferred to a nursing home, and she died in her bed at 91 years old, very peacefully, having lived this wonderful life completely given over to Jesus yeah. and just wonderful. Yeah. The 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 word that you mentioned a few times that just keeps coming to mind is, is privilege. Privilege. And how she just kept saying, no matter what happened, that it was a privilege. And it's just like, wow, to have that perspective. And I, and I think that comes, we've seen with so many of these, these women that, you know, when we recognize what Jesus has done for us, I mean, even go back to C.T. Studd. He's like, no sacrifice is too great to, for me to make for him. Like, everything's in honor. And, you know, she realized, too, that the Congolese accepted her because she had been raped and because she had been brutalized. Wow. And they felt so bad 
Mm. And the fact that she would stay and come back even after all that she went through, they loved her even more and Mm. wanted to protect her. And it gave her an open door because many of these young Congolese girls had also been raped and treated brutally by the Simbas. And she realized she wasn't alone, but because she loved Jesus, she was able to share the love of Jesus and bring not only physical healing as a doctor, but bring emotional healing and spiritual healing. And so that's why she also considered it a privilege. Yeah. And what a word of hope for anyone who suffered to know there's nothing that the Lord cannot turn for good or for his glory. I mean, anything he can use. You know, and in a society that prizes, you know, um, romance and sex Mm. above everything, and you think the only— sexual experience she ever had was so violent and so um, terrible. And she never got to have the romantic, wonderful, flowery that everyone thinks they're so entitled to, right? (laughs) She never had that. But what she did have, she used for Jesus. In fact, um, during the five months of captivity, when the Lord began to speak to her about a privilege, it was the first time that she slept all through the night. The other people who were in that bungalow and everything because of all the violence outside and all the unknown couldn't sleep. And she was able to sleep Wow! because she was so restful with the Lord. She knew the Lord loved her and would hold her no matter what happened. She was, she felt safe in the arms of Jesus. Yeah. And you don't get the sense that she wasn't complete or wasn't, there was such a sense of wholeness in her life and richness in spite of what she went through. That's just. And she was so loved by so many. And later she said she realized that she could not have done what she did Mm -hmm. or accomplished what she had, had she been married. She always thought that not being married was an obstacle to being able to do, you know, more things for the Lord. Right. Like if I had a husband, I could do so much more. And then at the end of her life, she realized had she had her husband, she wouldn't have been able to do what she did for the Lord. Yeah. Her story, you know, the worst happening to her was really an inroad to counseling and talking to these girls and being accepted and being loved. And, you know, most people, if, if they've gone through something violent like she did, hide it and they don't tell anyone. And she decided to be very open and to share it so it could bring as much healing. And, you know, when she shared it, it brought purpose to the sufferings. You know, everyone suffers. Yes, But yes. when God infuses our suffering with purpose and uses it for his glory, it changes the way we look at it. And again, he saw it as a, she saw it as a privilege. Yes. A privilege and not um, a curse. Yeah, and an, and an opportunity. I mean, going way back to when we talked about Mary Slessor even. Remember, she had an alcoholic father who was right. abusive and all of these things. But instead of becoming hard-hearted and bitter, she allowed the Lord to use that, you know, to make her soft and compassionate. Because so many others in that culture at that time were experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And she was able to see God uh, give beauty for those ashes. Interestingly enough, I this is just a little side note. When she came back— after um, uh, when she retired in 1973 and she came back, her brother Bob also moved back to England. And he, in the military, he had never been able to tell her what he did for the military. And he came back and he had been serving in Africa. And he said, I can tell you now I was a code breaker. (laughs) So he served, because there's a lot coming out about the code breakers. Yeah, And he was a code breaker and he was amazing at breaking codes. And so later uh, the government had sent him to Africa again to 
to work undercover there as uh, breaking codes. And the whole family was really gifted in math. And that's why she became really a treasure remarkable. at the end because she said she always preferred numbers. And that's why she went into infectious diseases and that type of medicine because it's all about mixing the compounds. And it's all about, you know, this many cc's of that and this many cc's of that and putting them together. That was her favorite thing to wow. do, to treat, uh, <laughs> but not the blood. Yeah, but the Lord yeah. gave her the ability at these yeah. clinics to do so much. And it's in the book, so many more stories than we oh. had a chance to do. I mean, we could have made this 30 parts if we were going <laughs> to tell everything. Yes. That's why she wrote we, 10 books. Yes, and we will put those books up on the website yes, so yes, you yes, can yes, check yes. them out. Because along definitely. with some of her, uh, along with biographies. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. there were, I read three biographies of her, but there's, I think, four or five. Oh, gosh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not to mention Lots her own works, that video that you mentioned as well. So, right. We'll make sure. so so again, we want to thank you so much for joining us on mm-hmm. this edition of Women Worth Knowing. And if you have someone, please, we'd like to start or maybe end the program. This would have been a perfect time to end with just a, a story of someone maybe that you know or that you wrote in. And we'd love to share that person with everybody because yes. we think that you're worth knowing. Yes, absolutely. All those women worth knowing. So r- please write to us, wwk at cccm.com. That's the email address. You can also go to graciouswords.com uh, or women.cccm.com and find a link for us. Until next week with another women, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut saying you're worth knowing. <laughs> That's right. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.